I'm going to try something a little different in the coming months with my opening take. Now that signing day has come and passed us by, we are truly in the meat of the offseason. Thus, there's not a ton of new things to talk about. So, I've decided that I want to use this small amount of time at the beginning of the show to highlight a different team every week from this generation of OU football. For purposes of this bit, that will include the Bob Stoops and Lincoln Riley era. I'm 27 years old, don't have a ton of knowledge, you know, spanning back into the 80s and 70s and whatnot. We will begin with what is ironically my least favorite OU season ever, the 2014 team. The 2014 season will be likely forever known amongst OU fans as the season in which the Sooners buckled under probably unrealistic expectations. It's also remembered as what was perhaps Bob Stoops' worst team. Of course, the hype for that season kicked off in earnest in the Sugar Bowl victory over Alabama to cap off the 2013 season. Trevor Knight threw for a million yards, Eric Stryker in the defensive pass rush harassed A.J. McCarron all night long, and the Sooners ended the BCS era by becoming the only team to be victorious in all four of the BCS Bowls. Of course, Oklahoma began the next season at number four in the polls, a prime spot to be in what would be the first year of the college football playoff, as well as an overwhelming favorite to win their first outright Big 12 title since 2010. The Sooners enjoyed a fairly dominant run through the month of September, going 4-0, until they ran into TCU in Fort, in Fort Worth in the first month of October. Of course, everyone knows the story from there. The Sooners would go a disappointing 4-4 four four the rest of the season. Losses included a rather fluky game in Norman to Kansas State, which saw the Sooners outgain the Wildcats by 200 yards and included two short missed kicks by Michael Honeycutt on the final two drives of the game. There was also that loss to Baylor by about a million points on Owen Field. That was the game in which Baylor literally ran an eight-yard hitch on every single play down the field to score on their opening drive of the second half. If you remember, Julian Wilson got in a shouting match with Mike Stoops on the sideline. That was fun. And of course, the Sooners would end their season with their third home loss, this time in bitterly disappointing fashion to Oklahoma State, and then following that up by being embarrassed by Clemson without Deshaun Watson in the Champs Sports Bowl. Now, I don't mean to dwell on the negatives of that season. Everyone listening right now experienced it. There's no reason to rehash it in detail. Everyone knows what that season was, an unmitigated disaster in which the team, frankly, quit halfway through the year. What do I want to turn focus to is the positives that came from that year. First, the recruiting class. Members included Joe Mixon, Samaje Pirine, Orlando Brown, Dimitri Flowers, Mark Andrews. Give kind of a shout out to Stephen Parker as well. It's a hell of a core. Don't forget, this was also the first year that Baker Mayfield spent on campus, so we'll add him to that group as well. Overall, that recruiting class represents two college football playoff appearances, the school's all-time leading rusher, the single-season record holder for all-purpose yards at OU, a crucial piece of the best statistical offense in college football history, three unanimous All-Americans, and a Heisman Trophy winner. That's absurd. Let us not also forget that 2014 was the last year that Lincoln Riley was not employed by the University of Oklahoma. If the Sooners had lived up to expectations of that 2014 season, we would most certainly be having a different conversation about the state of the program than we are now. I don't think that's debatable at all. On a micro basis, the average OU fan probably looks to the 2014 season with a sense of disappointment. I, I, I do, for the most part. But, thinking about it a little more, I would suggest maybe don't do that. Look at it as a necessary sacrifice. One miserable season for a renewed era of OU football. Completely worth it in my book. I'm Grant Benson. This is West of Everest. Whirling. Zips it across the middle. In the traffic. And it's intercepted by Julian Wilson. Wilson with a convoy. Gets a block. And takes it end to end. Julian Wilson welcomes us into the latest installment of West of Everest. His 100-yard pick six was a nice exclamation point on OU's 34-10 blowout win over Tennessee back in September of 2014. Wilson wore the number two during the 2014 season, and it's... February, the second month of the year, 
So we're using the West of Everest intros to showcase big plays made by OU players who wore number two. Last week's intro notwithstanding, since I had a uh, technological disaster, those problems, though, have been remedied. Hello again. I am Lee Benson. You heard Grant at the top with the opening take. He'll rejoin me in a moment to talk about Baker Mayfield further solidifying himself as an Oklahoma legend because of recent comments about Texas. We'll give our way too early predictions of who will start on the Sooners defense in 2018. Plus, we'll debate whether it's better for a football team to have an elite offense and a bad defense or an elite defense and a bad offense. But before we get into all of that, I want to remind you that West of Everest is on Facebook now. If you're on Facebook as well and you enjoy the show, go ahead and find our Facebook page and give us a like. You may have listened to Grant's opening take on Facebook Live before we uh, started recording the rest of the podcast. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. If you have not seen that yet, go ahead and like our page and you'll be alerted to whenever we do go live for the opening take, trying to give you a bit of a background into the show as we record it uh, right now every Tuesday here uh, during the off season. Also, if you've got a moment, feel free to leave us a rating and or and or a review on iTunes. We really appreciate everybody who's continued to listen to the show during the incredibly long football off season. All right, let's get back to Grant now and Grant as we're recording this episode on a Tuesday it's been exactly 50 days since Oklahoma's season ended at the Rose Bowl there are exactly 53 days until the Sooners spring game on April the 14th and exactly 193 days from now Oklahoma will be playing their season opener September the 1st against Lane Kiffin's FAU Owls team so what I'm trying to say is that we are a long ways away from the best time of the year, but this show is here to help everyone get through it all. Lee, I do want to say here, and I'll I'll, I'll touch on what you just talked about there, but I do want to say I, I, I got the idea for the whole kind of look back on different seasons thing because you used Julian Wilson here in the intro, and it made me think back to him yelling at Mike Stoops on the sideline, made me think of the 2014 season, made me just kind of think about the season, how miserable of a season it was. I started reading a little more and then realized, hey, they had a hell of a recruiting class that year too. So that's kind of kind of an interesting angle to take. So Lee, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for uh, for making me think about the whole Julian Wilson yelling at Mike Stoops on the sideline. I think I think that was actually the last time we've seen Mike Stoops on the sideline. I think he's been banished to the press box since then. Yeah, I I think you'd know more about that. Than, than I have because I honestly did not pay much attention to that 2014 season because I was back in College Station watching a lot of Texas A&M football however I do remember that moment because uh, I, I would record all the games so I mean I, I remember I DVR that game and uh, watched it and it was just in horror watching that game and how awful the defense was playing and I, I do remember the uh, the moment uh, on the sidelines but uh, the next year in 2015 was he up in the press box? Then I guess I, I yeah I mean, yeah I didn't it watch was a lot of that 2015 season. It was the next either. it was the next year where he was up in the press box for the first time. Um, I'm I'm sure I I think that was you know the the 2014 season that was kind of the first year where where Bob Soups I think felt like he had to make a lot of changes within the program and and that clearly happened and and here we are now. Uh, you know back to what you said about how you know it's been 50 days since the Rose Bowl. It seemed it actually hasn't seemed that long, so I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. And of course, 193 days to the season opener. I mean, that's just brutal. I think it's it's best just don't even think about it now. It's it, you're just going to torture yourself. Don't don't really actually start thinking about the season starting until June. I would say otherwise, you'll just torture yourself. <laughs> All right. The first thing I want to talk about today on the show is Baker Mayfield, and we don't have to spend a whole lot of time talking about Baker Mayfield in this topic. But just in case you haven't heard Mayfield's comments about Texas from this past Saturday. We're going to play them for you here. Some quick background. Mayfield was at the OU Texas basketball game Saturday. He was honored with his Heisman during a TV timeout in the first half. Then at halftime, he was made available to the media. He talked about the upcoming NFL draft, of course. That was a big topic of conversation. But then the topic switched to Texas, and Mayfield was asked to give his true feelings on the school. More like, you know, you know, why do you feel so negatively towards Texas? It was a, uh, I believe it was a writer from Austin that was there in town. And uh, when Mayfield was tasked with answering the question about Texas, his uh, response did not disappoint. 
You come to Oklahoma to beat Texas. I was born and raised in Austin. They didn't recruit me. I grew up 15 miles from their campus. I can't stand them. And anything they do, I don't care. You know, talk to the NFL guys. They, they say I have to calm it down a little bit. But when it comes to Texas, absolutely not. I can't stand them. That, no, just in a story. So that's Baker Mayfield. And for three years, you know, we've obviously known that he hates Texas. But this was probably the most honest Texas-related thing that Mayfield has said publicly since he's been in Norman. And those comments are exactly how every Sooner fan feels about Texas, which I think further solidifies Baker Mayfield as an Oklahoma legend. What do you think, Grant? Are you are you asking what I think about Baker Mayfield being an Oklahoma legend, as in that's of any question? You know, I mean, yeah, I think I think obviously that just that's just going to lionize you know you know him more in, in the hearts of OU fans. Um, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know if I really loved what he said. I mean, it, it's fine. Like I, I, I like the fact that he that he hates Texas. He just he just he didn't he didn't really say it very eloquently. So you know, I, I suppose that's just kind of where I am. I I just thought it was kind of a throwaway line, and I I, I get it. I, I don't know. I, I suppose maybe I was a little the 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 outcome of the basketball game in which he was at. Maybe that kind of soured my thoughts about it a little bit because as soon as he came out there and pumped up the crowd, the basketball team, you know, just went out and laid an egg. So. That's kind of what was running through my head that, the entire time. Well, I think uh, Sooner Nation and uh, Texas Nation, I'm not sure what the heck they call it, Horns Nation. I don't know if they even have a thing. doesn't matter. Who cares? Uh, they, most people did not think it was a throwaway line because um, Brian Mueller, a guy I work with at News 9, he posted this on Facebook and on Twitter. And it's ridiculous, the reaction and comments that has come from that. And I get social media. Not everybody's on it. But, I mean, it absolutely blew up over the weekend. I mean, there's been over... 1.2 thousand comments on this video it's been shared almost 5,000 times uh, that's just Facebook on on Twitter it's been like retweeted like thousands of times so people either obviously on the Texas side they probably hated it and then those on the OU side loved it um, for me though what really stands out to me is that you can clearly tell that his his true hatred of Texas comes from the fact that the school didn't show any interest in him as a football player and I know it's been documented that Mayfield was actually an Oklahoma fan growing up. But I think even if he was offered a scholarship to come play quarterback at Texas, don't you think that he would have taken that offer considering that he didn't have any offers really from any other big-time schools? I mean, pro- well, probably, yeah. If he didn't, I mean, what was his his best offer, I think, was that it was Washington State, I think. He got a Washington State offer. So, I mean, yeah, if Texas would have came in and offered him, and he was a two-star recruit, I, I can't imagine he would have said no to that. Um, but, yeah, I mean. So that's, I, that's that's the main thing. So, I mean, I, the fact that the closest school to him, you know, growing up, and the fact that it was Texas didn't want anything to do with him, and also to you add in the fact that he was an OU fan growing up, I mean, You've got a guy who totally wants nothing to do with with burnt orange. So I that's what really stood out to me in those comments. Yeah, it, it's awesome. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I wish I, I wish Sam Bradford would have had the same attitude towards Texas. You know, Bradford never would have said anything like that. And I think you know it, it's cool. I, I think you know we, you have a you have a sooner for life in Baker Mayfield. And I mean, as 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 fans, it's always cool. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. Are, are Texas fans like upset with what he said, or are they are I don't know. Oh, I mean, I'm I'm sure they're just like everyone that's that's not an Oklahoma fan. I'm sure has a feeling about Baker Mayfield and Texas. Of course, I'm sure they just think he's a, a punk and a jerk. And it just you know, it's it's one of those it's one of those sound bites that'll get. It's very polarizing and it'll get reactions from both sides of the aisle. Um, you know, also this week uh, Mayfield, he's in. Uh, I think he was in Dallas uh, to accept the Davy O'Brien Award. And he said that he's not going to go to the NFL draft in Arlington. He's going to watch the draft at home, which I found to be kind of interesting. I mean, remember last year, Miles Garrett didn't go, and he was drafted number one overall. So it's kind of been the thing now where these like top top players, and and no, I mean Mayfield could be the number one overall pick, but it's not a slam dunk. Uh, you know, these these high draft pick guys are st- uh, staying at home. I, I did think it was interesting though. He was asked this video I saw that that the OU football Twitter account posted. Mayfield was asked by a media member that if he if his plans will change about the draft, if he thinks he'll be a top five or maybe even a top ten pick. And Mayfield replied, quote, I have that feeling right now. And no, I'm not going to go to the draft. <laughs> so 
confidence never an issue for Baker Mayfield. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with that. I think it's it's starting to become pretty clear that he's a surefire top ten guy. Um, which on a, I mean, if if you listen to me leading up to the draft, that kind of kind of surprises me. Actually, I, I didn't. I didn't necessarily see that coming. Um, however, it's it it is nice to see that the uh, the pre draft process is, is is treating Baker Mayfield fairly well. Um, and so about not going to the draft, I mean that's that's cool. I, I mean he, he he preferred to be at home and spend it with his family. I mean I think that's that that's totally defensible. He's 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 been in Arlington in that stadium hundreds of times. You know I I, I also I had no idea that the draft this year was in Dallas. So I mean, that's interesting. I, th- I guess it was in Philly last year, wasn't it? So I suppose that makes sense. Yeah, they've been changing it up. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm the fact that he's not going to be at the draft now, uh, just kind of going into the minds of, of what I do at, at Channel 9 in, in Oklahoma City. I was, I was thinking, well, I mean, Oklahoma's got a poten- potentially they have maybe three first-round picks with Mayfield, Brown, and, and Mark Andrews. But now that Mayfield's not going to be there, uh, I wonder if May, uh, Brown and Andrews will want to go too, because we were thinking about going and covering it. But like, if none of the players even show up, it's not going to matter. It's not going to make any sense to even go. So, uh, but especially with Mayfield, because that was the bet's the big one. If he's not going to be there, it's like, oh man, that's kind of annoying. Um, but of course, as the draft gets here, we'll have plenty more time to talk about Baker, uh, Baker Mayfield, and, and whatnot. I think it's time to move on to kind of the meat of this podcast. We have a lot of stuff to talk about when it comes to way too early predictions for the Oklahoma defense. Who is going to start opening day against Florida Atlantic? And now last week, you may remember that Grant and I made some of those way too early predictions on who will start for the Sooners offense in week one. If you missed that, feel free to go back, listen to last week's show. Today, we're doing the defensive starter predictions. And this could be pretty good, considering that the defense was so bad in 2017. And there's at least five open spots in the starting lineup. So our baseline for the starting lineup is the Rose Bowl. I look back at the official starters for the Rose Bowl game in Pasadena. Based on that, OU must replace five players next year. Those players are DJ Ward, Oboe, Emmanuel Beal, Stephen Parker, and Will Johnson. The first position group we're going to discuss is the defensive line. And Grant, at this point, we can only assume that Mike Stoops will continue to implement the 3-4 defense until he talks about going back to the 4-3 in the fall, but then doesn't, like he did this past year, which is so bizarre. So anyways, based on what we've got, we've got three starting defensive line positions to discuss, and we're going to start with the defensive line. So first up, up, we're going to talk about the open spot at defensive end. DJ Ward is gone. Grant, who takes DJ Ward's spot in 2018? Lee, I think it's going to be the guy who started at defensive tackle in the Rose Bowl, and that'll be Amani Bledsoe. I think he'll slide over, and he'll be the starting defensive end. Um, I came to that conclusion honestly because I I looked through the roster and they're 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 very thin on the defensive line. They they don't I I'm do, doing this exercise. Lee has made me very concerned about the defense for next year. They do not have a lot of depth up front. <laughs> okay, so I think this is gonna be good because uh, I mean we had a a lot of the same the same players last week in the offensive thing. You had you had a couple different ones for me, and you actually did some research on the. Uh, H-back slash fullback position, which I did not really, so good on you there. Here, though, I think we're going to have a lot because there's so many question marks. Uh, for me, at defensive end, I'm saying right now, Kenneth Mann slots into Phil Ward's spot. You're absolutely insane. That Okay, well, I mean, how many times this past year did we talk about Kenneth Mann playing really well? Kenneth Mann is a, is a purely third-down pass rusher. There is no chance that he starts at defensive end. He's like 240 pounds. There's no chance. He's about the same size as as DJ Ward. They're just that he's just not. I'm sorry, he's just he's just isn't. That's what he listen to that. Yeah. Listen to that. I mean, they're about the same same size, same build. And I'm they're, telling they're you both. and I'm telling you that they are not the same size and the same build. That wouldn't be the first time that that uh that someone's uh, particulars have been have been a little exaggerated on a uh, on a roster. Uh, Kenneth Manza is, is a very, very undersized defensive lineman. He's I, I, I he is just not an every down starting defensive end. He just isn't. I, I mean, I I <laughs> vociferously disagree. And in fact, Kenneth Mann's listed as a he's bigger than than D.J. Ward on the Oklahoma roster. He's listed as five pounds heavier than D.J. Ward. All right. Well, so we can we we can you know, we can we can time stamp this and we can we can uh, we can go back to this. But I. Kenneth Mann is never going to be a three-down defensive lineman at, at the University of Oklahoma. I I am certain of that. 
Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, he was a situational guy in 2017. We all know that. I mean, he played well. He played well enough to certainly stand out in both the TCU games, each of them. He also stood out in the Oklahoma State game. I mean, he was second on the team. He had five sacks in 2017. Granted, Oklahoma did not get a whole lot of sacks as a team last year. 2018 is going to be his fourth year in the program. And I think right now, I, I, I think it's I, I'm shocked to hear that you're totally down on on uh, Kenneth Mann I'm not, because I'm, I think he's kind of just the logical pick to slide in for him. I'm I not mean. I'm not down on Kenneth Mann at all. I think Kenneth Mann is a is a very solid situational pass rusher. I think if you put him out there on first and second down, he's going to get absolutely pulverized in the run game. Literally, no Man, chance to I, be effective. I don't think that at all. I mean, who would have thought that DJ Ward would have been so effective and consistent at that position? going into the 27 DJ Ward season. is at least two or three inches taller than Kenneth Mann and has at least 30 or 40 pounds on him that's no no that's not true at all you're crazy if you think that I mean just just literally just put them like side by side just go go, go watch the games listed at 6'3 265 and I'm telling you that is who, whoever wrote that is high that's what I'm saying DJ Ward is listed at 6'2 260 just not, like DJ Ward <laughs> I Go just yeah, go, I, I, go look at them in pads on the field. DJ Ward I is, I is, saw is, them all year. is clearly bigger than Kenneth Mann. Clearly. Are you sure you're not thinking of like a defensive back or something and not Kenneth Mann? Because man, thirty or forty pounds. Lee like, Kenneth Mann is, Lee Kenneth Mann didn't step on the field this year unless it was third or fourth down. What makes you think that he's gonna be able to like be especially a defensive end in a 3-4, which is primarily tasked with taking on blockers so that so that linebackers can fill the gaps and stop the run. You think Kenneth Mann can do that? Are you insane? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Absolutely. Well, I, Why not? I, I legitimately think you're insane. Wow. Fireworks to start off this exercise with the defensive end position. So I, I, wow. I, I love Kenneth Mann as a situational pass rusher. No, he is he, he's just he is not a guy who can be a 3-4 defensive end and hold up in, in the run game. There's just absolutely no possible way. Wow. All right. So uh, if, 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 if Kenneth Mann is starting at defensive end on day one against FAU, this defense, is in, this defense and defensive line is in a lot of trouble. All right. Well, so if, if, you, have a, if you have Bledsoe sliding over then the defensive end, let's get to the next positions, uh, which would be officially the defensive tackle spot according to the rose bowl uh participation chart that's where bledsoe was so now we're moving to that spot who do you have then filling in for imani bledsoe i have neville gallimore um and this is going to be very his his development and his uh him bouncing back is going to be absolutely paramount for the defensive line this year um if he if if he doesn't improve from from last season at all this defensive line is is i i keep saying it. this defensive line has it may be bad next year it may be really bad all right, well, uh, for that position, I think Bledsoe will stick right back in there where he was as a starting spot, and he's he's a guy that uh, – let's see here. Where's my Bledsoe nuts? There it is. So, I mean, he's he's such a good athlete, and he's he's such a, a big player that, like – I mean, you mentioned Gallimore will have to break out. I mean, I think they're going to need Bledsoe to, of course, have a breakout year of sorts. You know, he had flashes this past season, returned from his suspension when he came back, made seven starts – uh, it's going to be his third year in the program, and for the first time, he's actually going to have a chance to play a full year, hopefully. So I like the idea of Bledsoe being there at that same spot. Okay. And I mean, just as far as Gallimore goes, I, I just I can't imagine him starting. I just I can't imagine. I just he he had such a great st- chance this past year, and he he obviously there's something he he can't. He didn't well, figure it out. Well, he's he, well. He started every game the the second half of his of his redshirt freshman year, and he was good. He was good, not great. Um, he he started the beginning of the season. He got hurt, and then he lost his job because he was bad. That's simple. So you know, I I'm if if Neville Gallimore isn't starting, that either means he 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 hasn't hasn't taken a step. Uh, he hasn't taken the step forward that they need, or which would be a really bad thing. Or that means there's just a young guy who is who's taken a spot. Lee, I I I. I Amani Bledsoe is is playing out of position at defensive tackle. You realize that, right? That if that Amani Bledsoe is is a is like the only prototypical three four defensive end they have on their roster, who is not who, who is not a true freshman. The thing with the Oklahoma defensive line being a three four, they don't really know what they want. I mean, the only middle kind of guy is like a big fat, like a yeah. They don't have you one. want a big. They don't have one. I mean, and well, they're they, in trouble. They, they got Michael Thompson coming in he's as a, a freshman, he's a but freshman. you don't know if he's going to be able to, to fill it. So I mean, that's what I mean. It's like. Okay, well, 
Monty Bledsoe is pretty darn big. He's a pretty big guy. So, yeah, he could play defensive end, but he also in this system could play defensive tackle, which he's that's where he started and plays. I mean, it's it's a very bizarre system for this defense. I I'm not a big three four guy, as as people listening to this podcast know. And just because they're playing out of position, I mean, sure, maybe he is, but I mean, he was starting there and he played there a lot this past year and. And like he's again, like he's gonna probably even get bigger. I mean, he's like a he's like two seventy, two eighty. Yeah, which is so. exactly how big a three four defensive end should be. If if you're running a proper three four, if 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 you're putting someone smaller than that at the defensive end on a three four, I mean that's that's not what you want. Um. All right. Well, then at the next position, then three four, the final defensive line position is a nose guard, and in the Rose Bowl, it was Marquise Overton starting, and uh, I've got Overton. Uh, Continuing to start there, uh, I I think there's no reason right now to think that uh, Overton will be beaten out. I mean, he had a he had a solid year. He led Oklahoma's defensive linemen in tackles this past season. Uh, not the biggest guy, but like he's thick, he's strong, and I love that he's on the Oklahoma wrestling team this winter. I mean, football players who also wrestle are some of the toughest guys in sports in general. And both football and wrestling, they complement each other so well, especially for defensive linemen. So, like, yeah, in wrestling, you're, you're constantly getting low, trying to, to grapple, get good position. And that can only help you when you're looking to get position on the football field when you're trying to beat a tackle or you're trying to rush the, rush the passer or something like that or, or shed a block. So uh, I think Overton continues to keep his starting spot. Yeah, uh, and I I agree. So I've I've Marquise Overton there as well. I thought he was probably the most consistent performer on the defensive line um, in the 2017 season. Uh, you know th- they're going to need him to take a, a major step forward. And and the issue with with Overton is I think I think Overton's obviously a, a really good player. I, I think I, I worry that maybe he's he's hit just kind of his physical peak though. I, I'm not sure if he can physically get any better. Um, it's going to have to be in, in in terms of technique and, and what have you. And so I, I, I'm 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 looking at this stuff and I say they just they, they really just don't have a lot of depth um, on the interior of the uh, on the interior of the defensive line. And, and by that I mean they don't have a lot of proven depth. They they have some bodies there, but just not a lot of guys who have who have really had success at the Division One level. You know when we're talking about you know who's you got uh, the two interior guys that I have listed, of course, are are Gallimore and Overton. But after that. The only guy that you really have, there's only two guys that have had playing time at all. That's that's Dylan Famatu. So you would think he'll he'll be kind of the first rotation guy on the defensive line. He he's a big guy, he is, but you know he didn't really stand out, you know, that much when he when he played last year. Uh, and then other than that, it's Tyrese Lott, who I you know played in September last year, but didn't really see much after that. Uh, so I mean, Devonte Lampkin leaving early created qu- quite the hole in the middle of that defensive line, and you know, uh, a young guy is obviously going to have to step up for them to fill that void. All right, let's move on now to the linebackers level, if you will, and let's start with uh, let's start with the Jack position. I mean, Oboe's gone. Who? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, can you replace Oboe? You know, it's one of those things. Or I mean, it's not. I don't want to ask like, oh, who's going to replace Oboe? Because it's like I don't know if anybody's going to be as as good at rushing the passer as him. But but maybe maybe somebody will be. I don't know. I mean, so who do you have uh, uh, slotting in for that Jack position in the three four? Yeah, I, I think this is a total toss up between Mark Jackson Jr. and Addison Gums. Um, not not exactly sure. I think they both have very very similar bodies. They're both uh, taller guys. Um, I, I'm gonna go with, you know, Mark Jackson. You know, he, none, and none of them have, have really done anything to to sour you at all when they've been on the field. They both look the part out there. I'm gonna go with Addison Gums just as a just as kind of a hail mary, just as a guess. Um, I, I I think I, I'm just hoping that he takes the next step. This is a guy who is a top 100 recruit as a pass rusher. He's a guy who just kind of has that quick twitch athletic ability that you like to see of edge rushers. And so I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna hope that he that he takes the next step and and develops into a really good player. I I I hope that he emerges and and, and takes that Jack Spotley. Well, since I've been giving the benefit of the doubt to veteran players during these way too early predictions, I'm gonna go with Mark Jackson. And uh, I thought he would be the sleeper defensive player of the year for the Sooners last season. He was not. I was wrong about that. Uh, but I do remember Oboe saying a lot of positive things about Jackson during fall camp this past this past fall. Uh, but Jackson just didn't see the field a whole lot in 2017. So with Oboe gone, he's going to get his chance to start for sure. But uh, 
this is also a spot where Jalen Redmond could be in play here, even though he's a true freshman. Uh, the, the big question, and, and I suppose Addison Gums too, I, but honestly, I didn't even think about him when I was thinking about this spot. I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if he's a guy that can, I, I, for this next thing, I mean, the big question for anybody that plays this spot is can they cover the pass? Can they play in coverage? And I, I know people hated when Oboe would drop into coverage, but the jack position actually requires a good amount of being able to play in pass coverage. Uh, at least in the base 3-4 defense, which is, is what Mike Stoops wants to play as far as we know. So uh, that's going to be a a part of this is like, can these guys also drop back and play in coverage? Because even though Oboe, again, people didn't like to see him drop in coverage, he was actually not too bad when he would drop into coverage here and there. He had some pass breakups. He made it difficult on, on some some running backs coming out of the backfield. Um, so, But right now I'm going to go with Mark Jackson as my way too early prediction to start there. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. Obviously, that could happen. He's he's been in the he's been in the program a year longer than Gums, and so I, I think I'm I'm more just going with the with, with the hope that the the talent of Gums wins out. Hopefully, he's cultivated that talent. Um, I I find it interesting about, uh, especially with you know saying that the Jack is is about you know sometimes you got to go out and cover the pass. I that may or may not be the case. I'm not sure. If it is the case, I hate it. Absolutely hate it. Um, not well, according to this article I read about the three-four defense and the Jack. It uh, is definitely a, a, a um, big part of that position. Sean Merriman very never dropped back in pass coverage. Um, what's what's the guy's name who plays for Denver now? He doesn't ever drop back. And Von pass Miller? Him. No, not Von Miller. The older the guy who used to play for the Cowboys, but is with Den- Demarcus Denver. Ware. Demarcus Ware never drops into pass coverage. Um, I, I hate it, man. He's your he's your best pass rusher. He should be rushing the passer. Um, I, I'm I, maybe maybe this is me just being ignorant of the scheme. I I, I, just, I don't like it. I, I I never think you know on 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 high leverage situations your best players should be doing what they're good at. Um, I, I I agree that obviously an outside linebacker in a three four needs to be able to cover. He he, he shouldn't be your primary pass rusher. It should be the other guy on the other end. I mean that's I think that's pretty basic three four. All right, moving on in the linebackers, the the interior linebackers in that 3-4 defense this past season uh, were Caleb Kelly and Kenneth Murray. And do you envision both of those players to continue to keep their starting spots going into 2018, Grant? Well, I I have it a little differently. I've I, I have kind of kind of flipped everyone a little bit. Um, I I do have Ooh, interesting. Okay, I, I have, I'm, I'm interested so, to see where this is so go, where this is going. I'll, I'll just just for for you know, for clarity's sake, I'll just go in order here. Of course, I, at Jack, I have Addison Gums, and then I'll and then I I go to the weak side linebacker, which is what Emmanuel Beal played this past year. I think uh, Kenneth Murray is 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 gonna is gonna uh, go over to weak side linebacker. Lee, uh, you, you, we heard kind of rumblings about that over the course of the season. I think some recruits have even come out and said some linebacker recruits came out and said that they're. I saw this somewhere they're planning on maybe moving Murray to the outside which is where he was recruited as he's recruited as an outside linebacker he was playing very much out of position uh, over the course of the season uh, this is me just spitballing we're so far away from the season and I'm just I'm, I'm gonna go with with what I hope I see Kenneth Murray was really bad at middle linebacker all year I, he, he was not good I know he was a freshman all-american and was the code defensive freshman of the year he was he was not good at middle linebacker this year um, and, and I I, I don't think that's for a lack of athleticism or ability. I think he's just he had never played the position before, and they asked him to play it at a high level, and he wasn't able to do it. So I think moving over to the weak side is going to be better for him. Lee, I think John Michael Terry is actually going to be the middle linebacker this year. Um, I, I think he's you know barring health, um, uh, it was his job to lose going into camp, and he got hurt. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised with 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 an off season, another year in the program for him. This would be his third year in the program. Um, he's, he's, he's a little thicker in the middle. Um, I, I, I just really wouldn't be surprised if, if, if he takes over that middle linebacker spot, uh, other than that, you know, maybe Levi Draper can make a run at it, but you know, he's coming back from injury. So that's, that's unlikely. And I think Caleb Kelly will, will likely stay on the strong side. Lee. Well, as far as I'm concerned, I, I have Murray and Kelly sticking in the same, same spots. And I guess to touch on, on Kenneth Murray, uh, because if we're going to talk about it, I mean, I, I got John Michael Terry then filling in for Emmanuel Beal on the weak side. Because even though Kenneth Murray certainly is not a a true middle linebacker, he just played 14 games at middle linebacker. And he got 
some valuable experience. Played it poorly. He got invaluable in spe- experience. So if John Michael Terry was better than him, he would have at some point taken his spot during the year. And I think even if John Michael Terry would not have been injured, I can't. I, I don't think there's any evidence to, to suggest that Kenneth Murray still wouldn't have won the job. So uh, the, I can't imagine putting a brand new starting middle linebacker in in 2018 because then we could go through the same exact stuff that Oklahoma went through this past fall where we had a uh, the Sooners had a guy that had never played there before and was trying to figure it out on the go now we got a a whole year of Murray and I could see them and and from game one to 14 didn't it look like he made any improvement in terms of his reads what gaps he was supposed to uh, he didn't get any better Lee at all, I I'm with you, but at some point though, I mean, don't the coaches I mean, don't the coaches see that too? Why didn't John Michael Terry ever get slotted in to take a spot, no, take I, his position? You no, know, I, I I don't know. I, why, he might not be very good either. You well, know, he's also at that spot. he's also a middle linebacker. Why are you moving him to the outside if he's a middle linebacker? Because you know what, the the way the Oklahoma defense is set up, all these spots are pretty much interchangeable at this point because none of these players have really proved that they are elite at any of these positions. So oh, that's, the way not, these that's not how are, it, that's not how it works, though. These people have different they have different body types for different positions. They have different understandings of different positions. They work in different play. Like you, it's not it, you can't just take a linebacker and say, hey, you've played weak side and then just and move him to the middle. It doesn't work like that or, or vice versa. It's well, there's not, probably a good chance that a lot of these players didn't even play in the three, four in high school. A lot of these guys probably played four, three and now they're playing a brand new yeah, scheme. That's, that's probably true. And they may, may not even know what it is anyway. An- so that's another, kinda, re- another reason why the three, four is dumb unless you have the perfect personnel to run it. So, I mean, like I understand your thought process. I mean, I, I understand that John Michael Terry certainly I guess, built more like a middle linebacker, but I guess more for me, it's just like, well, at some point this year, I would have assumed that if he was, good he would have shown better in practice and taken Kenneth Murray's job because I mean the Oklahoma defense I mean I guess it didn't happen really told the end of the year but Mike Stoops wasn't afraid to put different players in there and, and uh, I mean obviously um, Jordan Thomas the biggest example of him losing his job to a freshman so uh, so yeah so I mean obviously the linebacking core that's difficult I mean uh, so I, I, I have John Michael Terry filling in for Emmanuel Bill right now uh, you know he still played in 13 games this past year I think he'll get a chance to start as of now uh but keep your eye on also i mean curtis bolton he got injured this past year i guess i mean he was playing decently well in the first month of the season long and uh, uh, some wild cards i mean obviously you got levi draper we don't know anything about him because he, he was injured and he didn't have a chance so i mean who knows maybe he's really good and then also you got the walk on brian mead brian mead he's probably not going to start but he's a guy that he was like basically backed up for emmanuel beal this past year and didn't see a whole lot of playing time, but apparently he's like one of those players that's always really good in practice. And I don't know. I mean, he's probably I, not going to start. I, I, but I think just keep your eye on him. The, the fact that you're mentioning Brian Mead right now, I think, is just is the perfect encapsulation of how awful the linebacker recruiting has been uh, the last few cycles. Brian Mead should never touch the field on this on a, on a team like Oklahoma. And, I'm, and obviously, you know, Brian. I'm sure he's he's a good football player. Uh, Oklahoma should not. Uh, Oklahoma should not have walk-on linebackers in there too deep. That's completely unacceptable. All right, still, I mean, fireworks at, at all levels of the defense. And now we're not even to the, the level of defense that they might have the most uh, question marks, and that's the secondary. Uh, I mean, eh, the linebackers have a lot of question marks. But uh, the secondary, let's move to the DBs. We'll start at the safety positions first, since both safety spots wide open. Steven Parker gone, Will Johnson gone. We'll start with free safety. Let's see. I'll go ahead and start. I won't. I won't ask you to name yours first. Free safety. Who's going to start there opening day? And as of now, I think Chance Sylvie will get the first crack at the starting free safety spot. Mainly, he was used as Oklahoma's fifth D back this year. I guess you want to call him the nickel back. I just don't know if the nickel back is a whole lot of play these days in the Oklahoma defense uh also Khalil Houghton at times is also the fifth defensive back uh Sylvie already a lot of experience under his belt going into his third year of the program I can see him actually turning out to be a pretty solid starter and contributor uh next year who do you have at free safety uh, I have Robert Barnes uh I think it's another one of me I, I I hope Robert Barnes is his talent wins out and he's good enough just to take the job because I, I think that would just be a good development for you know for the team really um i'm i i I have no problem with chance sylvie i i I think he's a solid fifth uh fifth defensive back nothing nothing more i i don't think 
Chance Sylvie is a guy that you really want starting on a on a good defense. Um, but but we'll see. He he just I, I and he was a guy who I who I really hoped was was going to have kind of a breakout season this past year and it didn't really materialize. He's at, at this point. I I really do think that Chance Sylvie is just solid depth, and I would hope that the talent of, of Robert Barnes will will win out for the free safety spot. Yeah, no, I understand that. I mean, Robert Barnes, obviously a pretty highly touted recruit, but Chance Sylvie saw the field a heck of a lot more than Robert Barnes saw the field this past give me, year. Give me, give me ability over seniority any day. I, I'd much rather have uh, young guys flying around athletically out there um, and not know. Well, sure, sure. I mean, but like, you know, if, if ability would have won out, Robert Barnes would have probably been that fifth defensive back a heck of a lot more. And, and he really was. I mean, he started that one game. Well, he's also you, um, he, he also had some injury problems. And you also yeah. got to remember, he, he missed his entire senior year of high school, too, with a serious leg injury. Um, so this is going to be, you know, that that first it, it, it's always kind of the second year back from those leg injuries that the guy kind of that guys really kind of regain their past form. So this, this is a big year for Robert Barnes. I'm, I'm this is what I hope. You know, of, of course, Chance Sylvie might might be the starting free safety. But, you know, February right now, this is this is how I'm calling my shot. Well, yeah, of course, Robert Barnes, a player that both you and I were, were hoping would be kind of like one of the sleeper defensive players last season and uh, just. Again, had some injury issues. I think he pulled his hamstring or something like that in the middle of the year and um, kind of finished somewhat strong down the stretch, but really didn't make a whole lot of impact uh, to this defense. What about strong safety, Grant? Who do you have starting at strong? Uh, I have Khalil Houghton. Um, I, I think he's just kind of the, the the easy choice right now to step in and replace Steven Parker j- just because he is, I, I, out of all of the defensive backs, he probably is the best tackler, and that was kind of Steven Parker's uh, role he'll you know probably come up in the box quite a bit more um so i i guess i could see someone else actually not really though. i mean they, they really don't have a lot of safeties yeah, i'm i i can't imagine it I, I can't imagine cleo Houghton won't be one of the starters at safety yeah this is one of the uh, i think the we've been on the same page for sure i think this is the first position except for maybe overton where we've been 100 percent on the same page yeah i i think uh you know at first at first, honestly, I was thinking that Houghton would be kind of a shoe-in for the starting free safety spot because really, that I mean, that's where he he backed up Will Johnson this year. But then I thought more about it, and I was like, well, he's more of a strong safety because, yeah, I mean, he's a good tackler. I mean, he's not the he's and he's also not he's not that great in coverage from what I've seen. Which you know, who does that sound like to you? You know, of course, it sounds like Stephen Parker. You know, because Parker, even though Parker was a much better tackler, uh, best tackler on the team in 2017, but in coverage, he had he was spotty. Uh, got better as the season went on. Um, so, yeah, I think it makes sense for Houghton to kind of switch over and give strong safety a crack uh, kind of going into his senior season. So I'm, I'm with you on that one. Uh, going to the cornerback spots, we had Parnell Motley. We had Trey Norwood starting in the Rose Bowl. Let's see. This is so, this is where it gets interesting because they have a – at corner, they have a lot of bodies and they have a lot of blue-chip recruits at corner too. So it gets interesting. All right, Grant, so – I'm not going to ask you know, who's going to start at left corner, right corner. Just, I mean, I guess the easy question is: Does does Trey Norwood and Parnell Motley each keep their starting cornerback spot? Yeah, day one, I think they will. I, I don't. By the middle of the season or the end of the season, I, I I don't think you'll you'll see the same. I think I think Parnell will will. I, I hope that he'll keep it the entire time. But but I think you'll probably see a, a swinging door opposite of Parnell Motley. I think uh, you're going to see a lot of guys get a lot of opportunities. I think on that other side. Because honestly, right, well, I, I don't think Trey Norwood's that great. Um, he just didn't really do a lot to impress me other than just not screw up spectacularly um, in the second half of the season. All right, see, this is going to be another fireworks position. Wow, this would be good. Now, Grant, I think Buki, Radley Hiles, he will start at one of the cornerback spots on opening day. I think he will eventually, too. Um, I, I guess I, I, I think I think opening day. Just I mean, watching him on film, I think he's right now this day already a better player than both Motley and Norwood. He's and a- the, the main thing that stands out to me is his thickness. He's bigger than both of those guys, and his ball skills are just fantastic on film. You you watch him play man, and I get this is high school, but you you, you see his awareness of the wide receiver's eyes. And once Buki sees the receiver look for the ball, then Buki he turns his head, he makes plays on the ball. You know, I think Trey Norwood also has really good ball skills, but overall, I think Buki is, I think he's a better player, and and I I think he will be in one of the starting spots, week one. I hope you're right. Uh, I think that would be a good thing if he is, um, especially if, if if Buki wins one of those corner jobs. I mean, that's 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 a sign of really good things to come. This is 
this is the deepest the corner has been at OU in a long time. And they got they got some good players at that position. You know, guys we haven't even talked about yet who I think are you know, I for instance, I I think OU has has four guys backing up these two corners I have are gonna start the first game that are probably more talented than the two corners who are who I have as as the starters. Um, and so it, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see just kind of who steps up and takes those spots. I, I, I would love it to be Buki, but remember you got Trey Brown, you got Justin Broyles coming off a of redshirt year, who a lot of people thought was better than Trey Brown uh, in high school. Um, you know, who else you got in there? You know, Buki, Trey Brown, Justin Broyles. Um, there's another well, one. Well, I mean, Jordan Parker. Jo- oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Jordan Parker. There, Jordan Parker was a top 100 recruit. Uh, had a good had a good freshman season too. So he, he's back from an injury. So we'll we'll see how how effective he is coming off of an ACL injury. Uh, not to mention you got and you got uh, true freshmen coming in who are you know who, who are top two hundred and fifty players in the country too. Miguel Edwards, Starlin Baldwin. So you know they they got some bodies at corner. It's it's going to start getting interesting in that position for sure. And that's a position too where if they need to they're gonna they're gonna probably make people switch positions, move some people to safety. Yeah, probably because uh, it, it's one of those things like where I don't I don't necessarily agree with this. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, corner is a lot more difficult and safety is, is not as difficult as playing a corner position. I don't I don't agree with that at all. I think I think corner is an easier position to play than safety, because at corner, you're basically responsible for either like a guy or like a very small portion of the field, whereas at safety, you're responsible for a lot of the field and a slight mistake. And it could be a touchdown. And I know that's the same at, at cornerback every once in a while if you got man to man coverage. Uh, but the, th- that's my opinion. Uh, so I guess the general thought in football circles, though, is that you could move a guy from corner to safety because in theory, it's actually a little less stressful to play one of the safety positions. Uh, so we'll see if, if that's a thought. If, if they don't feel like the depth at safety is there, maybe they'll want to change positions with uh, one of those players that you mentioned uh, at the other cornerback spot opposite of Buki. I think it'll be either Motley or Norwood. I, I hate to be the guy that goes or uh, but I just I don't know. And honestly, I'm I'm higher on Trey Norwood than you. And I'm not as high on Parnell Motley, which pains me to say that because of how how well he played for the first month or two of the season. But his his decline really bothered me. And he, he looked like a different player the last half of the season. Um, his ball skills weren't as good. He wasn't as good in coverage. Uh, he, he was an okay tackler, but he wasn't as good as I remember him being early on. He wasn't as aggressive. Um, the problem with Norwood is that he... He wasn't the greatest tackler either. He's very little. He's put put some weight on. He's put some put some muscle Trey on. Wor- Trey, Trey Norwood physically is not ready to play Division One college football. I mean, that was he just isn't. Uh, that was well, yeah, that was completely I mean, but, out but of necessity. What really separated him though is the fact that he's really good in pass coverage, which is very important in the Big Twelve, and was certainly a huge upgrade from Jordan Thomas, who for whatever reason his last year at OU just could not could not figure it out when it came to to covering receivers and whether it be man or cover two or cover three and, and Trey Nor was a lot better at that yeah so, uh, yeah I mean you know it's obviously I, I don't I don't mean this to like pick on Trey or anything like that um he could completely surprise me come out of nowhere you know next year and completely remake his body and whatnot and be a great player and I, and I hope that's the case uh we'll just see I, I do want to back up a little bit uh because we are talking about the secondary there is one thing there was there was one player of course that I that I forgot to mention uh in, in the last spot when we were talking about the linebackers but now that we're talking about the secondary, it's still relevant. Lee Ryan Jones is a redshirt freshman. He was he came in on the the 2017 recruiting class as a as an athlete. He was a he was a he was a wide receiver and a safety um, in in high school. I'm sorry, he was a wide receiver and a linebacker in high school. He is 6'1", 219 pounds. That was as a freshman. I would, I'd assume he's bigger now. Um, from what I understand, Lee, he has moved to linebacker, um, and he has impressed. He is a guy that has impressed a lot of people. So look out for Ryan Jones as one of those outside linebackers as well, maybe as as someone to replace a guy like Emmanuel Beal. And I just wanted to, to bring that up. Yeah, the the problem with that though is that And he's the you know, we, he's your he's he, he, unless he's put on about twenty pounds, it doesn't, I'm he's, not too thrilled about that. No, you don't well Emmanuel Beal was two hundred and ten pounds. I know he's, he's but bigger how many than times Emmanuel did we, Beal already. How many times did we criticize and I mean, and Roquan Smith, like who is Ro- Ro- Roquan Smith, who is one of the best college defensive players I've ever seen, was like two thirty. So, you know, I it's some people some people wear the weight better than others. I from where he is right six one two twenty as a freshman, I I don't think he'll have any problem putting on ten pounds. 
to get up to 230, which is which is perfect for weak side linebacker in the Big 12. Um, he's he he has kind of the potential to be that prototypical Big 12 linebacker that can do both, kind of like that TCU hybrid safety linebacker, which OU desperately needs someone like that right now. To uh, put a bow on the secondary talk, who's going to be that fifth defensive back or nickelback, whatever you want to call it? Uh, I, I know nickelback is a very popular term when it comes to Mike Stoops and this defense, but I just it doesn't doesn't seem like the same position anymore as it used to back when when Roy Williams was was back there playing that position. Uh, anyways, I, for, I'm just calling it the fifth D back. Uh, who do you think that's going to be? Um, I, I think it's ultimately if I have to, I, I think it'll be Sylvie again. Um, oh, okay. It'll be um, it'll be between Sylvie and I. I think it could be a lot of guys. Uh, you could throw Trey Trey Brown in there. I'd feel great about it. That that might be Buki's role early on in the season. Um, it would be surprised if Justin Broyles is there too. So you know we'll see. They they have they're gonna have some options there, and I and I think they're they're gonna have some talented options there. It'll be really interesting to see which way they go. But for now, I think you you might as well just throw Sylvie in there because that's what they, you know that's what he's done the last two years. Well, I mean, I got Sylvia at free safety, so uh, my fifth guy is uh, Jordan Parker. I mean, he's Jordan Parker. That that was a huge blow for Oklahoma's defense when he went down against UTEP. He's a great, he's a really nice player. I mean, granted, we didn't only we didn't get to see him for more than a half in 2017, but uh, back from injury, I think uh, he had a pretty good freshman year, played a lot, and I could see him sliding right back in because that's where he was against UTEP. He was that fifth guy. Yeah, I, I'm a little, I, I'm, a, I'm a tad concerned about the ACL. Just when you have so many healthy bodies and talented bodies, you know, there as well. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how well he he bounces back from the ACL. It helps that it was early on in the season, so he'll have he'll have almost a full year of recovery time before the season starts. But I don't know, like, you know, like we said with Robert Barnes, it, it seems like it's it, it's not until that second year until you're you're back to 100 percent from an ACL. All right. Final topic of the show. We had a viewer ask us this question. He thought it'd be a pretty good discussion point. So here's the issue, Grant. Do you prefer an Oklahoma team that has an elite offense coupled with a bad defense, pretty much like what we saw the past two years at Oklahoma, or would you prefer a Sooners team with an elite defense coupled with a bad offense? Go. Well, Lee, I... I, I think it, it totally depends on on which era you're playing in. I I, th- I think if if you're talking about the 2017 season, um, you, you talking about a team that has a good defense and a bad offense. Look at Texas in the Big 12. That's there you have it. I mean that's 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 what a team with a bad offense and a good defense looks like in the Big 12. Um, and, and yeah, I, but they didn't have like an elite like elite to like national defense though statistically yeah, i guess I, that that's a point it's i, I like, know, you know but i i how, how much of that had to do with their offense being so bad um maybe a lot i, I mean i don't think you and i i think texas had a top 10 or 15 defense in the country last year and i so yeah i mean so i'm just I, i'm just yeah. saying there's there's your there's kind of your baseline your comparison uh but to answer your question I, i'd much rather have an elite offense um, and a bad defense, and I think just just anecdotally, or and anecdotally, I think that that's been a more successful combo just ever since I've watched football. If if you go to the NFL, uh, teams with bad offenses are never are never good, like ever. Um, even if they have a good defense, if you go to the, I, I I guess off the top of my head, I'm struggling to find um, exact you know examples in college football, but. Uh, typically in college football, if you if you have if you have a if you have one really good side of the ball, you'll 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 typically at least be a good team. Um, but we we do know for sure to win a national championship, you have to be very good at both of them. Yeah, I suppose if I got to make a binary choice, I'd pick the same as you: the elite offense coupled with a bad defense. Because you know the past two years we've seen it at Oklahoma, and the Sooners are still a, a national title contender both years. Uh, you know, going back in time, the uh, our our listener when he uh, when he had this topic, uh, whenever he um, sent the email and said, "Hey, yeah, hey, maybe you should talk about this." He he mentioned that 2001 and 2009, uh, those two Oklahoma teams as units that had elite defenses but uh, not very good offenses. And looking back at at those teams, you know that that 2001 team was certainly a title contender. Uh, with a less than ideal offense, but that was until they only that you know, the offense only scored 13 points and lost Bedlam uh, late in the year, and they're they're knocked out of the national title talk. So, 
Uh, and then, of course, 2009, that was, that was a lot more recently. And I think this is kind of to your point, kind of a more like a modern era, if you will, when scoring and offenses have now been in the upswing uh, since the early 2000s. The Sooners in 2009 went eight and five in a year where they had a national uh, they had national title hopes coming into the year, had an elite defense offense uh, after Sam Bradford got injured was was just particularly not very good when it comes to Oklahoma standards. But, uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I, I'd pick a elite offense. I, I was going to bring it up uh, here in the here in the rundown. You know, what was the last national champion in college football who who could be classified as like one of these types of teams, whereas a team that won it all that had an elite offense, but a bad defense or a bad offense and an elite defense. The only, and off the top of your head, Grant, can you think of any? I can think of one team, maybe, but this is without stats. I think maybe that 2002 Ohio State team is the is maybe the only team that would uh, fit into there. But I, I, I got to think that Ohio State probably wasn't as bad offensively as, as I'm remembering. All right, so <laughs> I went and did some research on this one because I thought it'd be uh, one I, I wouldn't know, or maybe, and, or uh, maybe that LSU team that beat OU in the 2003 national championship. All right, so I have both those two teams on this list. I I, I only marked down teams that had a maybe were potentially in that uh, that discussion. So let's start with that first one you mentioned. And actually, the 2002 Ohio State team is the most interesting one of these five teams I have listed. And and you tell me if you think that it's fair or not. Ohio State really that year they weren't particularly elite on really either side of the ball on offense they only averaged 5.6 yards per play and less than 30 points uh, points per game so offensively they were just like fine and then defensively the defense was their strength the Buckeyes in 2002 but defensively they allowed 4.6 yards per play which was 23rd in the nation in yards per play the thing is, they only allowed like 13 points per game, which was like number two in the nation. So that team, I, I'm not sure if it even qualifies because both, if you're going by yards per play, both of their their numbers really weren't elite in either one of them. So that that's kind of shocking, right? Yeah, no, that's shocking. Especially the the yards per play on defense is is pretty surprising. Um, because back then in the early 2000s, like there's tons of teams, I shouldn't say tons, but like all the elite teams were like under four yards per play. I mean, there's like multiple teams that like would allow fewer than four yards per play, which is insane to think about now. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I'm still a little mystified by that 2002 Ohio state team. Um, only just because they had so many close calls. They, they did have a lot of NFL players on that team. So, you know, it's, it's it's hard to say that they weren't talented because they're obviously a talented team. But yeah, I mean that's interestingly. I'm glad you looked that up. I I don't really have anything to say to that. That's that's kind of shocking to me that uh, I I always just assumed that Ohio State's defense that year had to have been just spectacularly good. Um, but you're telling me that it was just good. That's it. It was good. I mean, it, is it, in a points per game basis, it was it was elite. But you know, on this podcast, we don't necessarily use that as a baseline. Uh, because points can happen kind of randomly here and there. Oh, I mean, yeah. Obviously, the, that's the whole point of the game. Yeah, the scoring, offense but, can give up points. You know, that, yeah. that, that, that it goes against that average. So it's, yeah, very interesting. It, the I, I can't believe they won a national championship scoring under 30 points per game. That's yeah, ins- they averaged 29.2 points per that's game. That's insane. Oh, my goodness. They, they, uh, Trestle really did just pull a rabbit out of his hat in that season. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, I mean, that you know, that was Miami and the – you know, during their dynasty, I can't even imagine how many first rounders they had on that that team that lost in the national championship game. So that, that's that's surprisingly. What were some of the other teams on on that list? All right, so the 2003 LSU team, you brought that up as well. This is on my list, and offensively, they were better than that um, Ohio State team from 2002. But that not, doesn't surprise me. Not, not really by much, though. At LSU that year averaged five point eight nine yards per play so fewer than six yards per play they averaged 33 points per game so okay that's fine uh defensively though the defense of course was was elite defense allowed four yards per play so that team elite defense not a very good offense and to compare the 2009 OU offense averaged 5.49 yards per play and that LSU offense averaged 5.8 yards per play so LSU offense technically was better, 
but that's pretty similar as far as like Oklahoma's offense in 2009 compared to LSU's offense and Oklahoma's defense allowed 4.09 yards per play so that, that was, LSU team had a better offense in 09 uh, than the 09 Sooners but defense was pretty similar on a yards per play basis uh, but that LSU team won it all in 2003. Yeah, it's interesting, and you know, it, it goes to show you. I mean, you know, there's there's just lots of things that go into a season. You know, you got to remember that 2009 uh, team also. Lee, they played a brutal schedule, um, so I'm, I'm sure they played a bunch yeah, of. Yeah. You know, I'm sure they played a. I, I think I think Nebraska that season was was a very elite defense, and they you know they played Nebraska in Lincoln, played Texas, who was an elite defense, Miami that year, who who was. Uh, who is a top 10 team that year. They played them on the road. Of course, they opened with BYU, who only lost one game that entire season. That was a brutal schedule that the 2009 team played. I, I, I would guess that if they played just kind of like a normal, you know, regular year schedule, they, that probably would have been closer to a 10-2 and two type OU team with just like a really good defense. But, you know, when, when you couple a freshman quarterback and, and, a, and a brand new offensive line uh, with a schedule like that, you know, boom, 7-5, and five, that's what happens. The next team on my list, the 2007 LSU National Champions. They averaged 5.8 yards per play. Oh, yeah, I should have. Yeah, but I, I actually I don't remember them being like bad on offense. I remember them being inconsistent on offense. Yeah, that was a team that had McFadden. No, no, McFadden was on Arkansas. Uh, that was that, cra- that crazy game where Arkansas went to like tr- double or triple uh, overtime Matt, against LSU. Matt Flynn was LSU's starting quarterback. Yeah. I believe their starting running back was Jacob Hester, which makes me mad. Um, the LSU, they, they, I, I think they just had ridiculous ability on defense that year. Defensively allowed 4.4 yards per play. Yeah. I mean, I remember that was the 2007. What a, what a weird year. I mean, that was, um, I'm very outspoken. I thought OU was, was the best team in the country that year. Um, snake bit by injuries, of course, but what, what a mm. weird season that was. That, that was a fun year. I have two more teams on this uh just to recap we're talking about national champions that had either an elite offense and a bad defense or an elite defense and a bad offense trying to find the teams that kind of qualify in there and in 2010 this is the only team that can qualify as an elite offense with a bad defense with cam newton and auburn on offense they averaged 7.37 yards per play so almost 7.4 yards per play average over 40 points per game defensively the Auburn Tigers allowed 5.3 yards per play and to put that in perspective OU's defense the past two years allowed like 5.8 yards per play yeah it's, but you know they they did but as always Leon even when you you know when you mention those bad defense they always do those bad defense always do one thing really well and that Auburn team had Nick Fairley and they they stuffed the run very well so you know it's they they didn't they they gave up a lot of they gave up a lot of yards through the air but nobody could run on them and you know what everyone could do everything on OU's defense this year so <laughs> and then the final team on this list and this is kind of a surprising one I don't, I don't know if it really qualifies you tell me the 2015 Bama team that won it all offensively they were just kind of fine uh, 5.89 yards per play but averaged 35 a game of course defensively Alabama allowed 4.3 yards per play. Try, so uh, I'm trying. Yeah, not, to, I mean, I'm trying to stall here. I want to know what Auburn's defense was ranked in S and P in 2010. Because I'm really, <laughs> yeah, the, I, I'm guessing they were probably good on defense in S and P. Is my guess. Well, of all the teams we that, that I found, I, I, I threw you know I threw five teams in this list. Only one of them was able to win it all with an elite offense and a bad defense. And Oklahoma this past year was trying to be that next team to do it, and obviously it just didn't work out. Did you find it? Uh, yeah, I found it. They were 17th in defensive S&P that year. Yep, they, they had an elite run defense team. Pretty pretty bad pass defense. An elite run defense, though. Man, having a really bad pass defense in the SEC back then in 2010 is kind of uh, unforgivable. Yeah, My I goodness. agree. But also, I mean, they were killing everybody, and it was they just, you know, everyone was throwing against them as well. So, um, yeah, I, so I, I think on a per-play basis that, that defense wasn't great, but, or I mean, you know, on from an average, but really from play to play, that that Auburn defense was 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 good. It was it, it very comparable to the 2015 OU defense. So basically, in the last ten years, there's. 
three teams that kind of qualify as a team that has had an elite unit and then like a not very good unit. And two of the three champions have had elite defenses. One of the three champions has had an elite offense and a poor defense. But, you know, your S&P says that Auburn's defense actually wasn't that bad. So, uh, so yeah, interesting discussion. Uh, we and both remember think that having an elite offense would be better. If you remember, time. I think they, they held, like, Oregon, who was the number one offensive team in the country, to only, like, 20 points in the national championship game. So that 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 defense obviously had ability, and they, they, had, a, they had a high first-round uh, draft pick and on the interior of the defensive line, which is pretty much an equalizer in college football. So it makes sense. Final thought on this topic is I think what needs to be said is that at Oklahoma, it's unacceptable to be truly bad at either offense or defense. No matter what, you should be at least average and respectable on both units based on the type of player that Oklahoma gets year in and year out. Like it's unacceptable that the defense has been as bad as it's been the past two seasons doesn't make any sense yeah I agree and I also you, you use the word bad I, and you, we we were talking about that 2009 that 2009 offense was not bad by the way I mean it may have been bad by OU standards but just you know in terms of like in terms of college offenses it was probably still one of the 30 or 40 best offenses in the country um, so I, I'm not sure if you can consider that bad per se but but yeah i mean by by ou standards it was it was probably a pretty bad offense i just wanted to say this just looking at the the schedule from that 09 season i get what you're saying to be more specific when the offense was bad it was really bad yeah that's that that? is it was very and you know what lee it was that offense was 60th in snp that 2009 offense so perhaps just I mean, Oklahoma lost five games in 2009. Obviously, the first one was when Bradford got injured against BYU. Oklahoma only scored 13 points. Can you imagine? Yeah, I just... So, look at... I mean, Oklahoma lost five games a year. They lost games in which they scored 13 points, 20 points, 13 points, three three points. Three points. That was at Lincoln. That was at Nebraska. Yeah, and then they scored 13 in when they the one game where they got blown out. Uh, against Texas Tech, where they just didn't show up in Lubbock. Uh, 11, 11 a.m. kick, 11.30 kick. But, I mean, the fact that Oklahoma lost games in a season in which they only allowed 14 points, 21 points, 16 points, 10 points, and they lost all those games that year. <laughs> yeah, that's Yeah, that's I mean, that's how, yeah, that's how you have a really good defense and lose. There you, I mean, obviously, the defense played well in those games, and that means the defense was carry in a terrible offense in that game, too. So if, if the offense was any good, it could move the chains, they probably would have given up less points. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that is our... Uh, oh, actually, before, before we close out, we will make the, make the note that here at West of Everest, we have decided to not talk about Oklahoma basketball until the Sooners win another game, and we're not even sure at this point if that's going to happen. So yeah, I think I, I think it's yeah. it's 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 entirely possible right now that they play four more games this season and then they're done. So I, I mean I, I don't think we've seen anything that suggests that they can that they can win a game the rest of the season. And I'm dead serious. Which is difficult to say uh, to say, which I, I agree with you. Uh, a month ago or weeks ago it was well, at least if they play at home they have a shot and it doesn't even look like now the home court's even much of a factor. So Anyways, that is our show. Next week's show will come out right as the NFL Combine is getting underway. So we'll probably have some thoughts on that. OU's Pro Day isn't until the middle of March, so we've got a while until then. Really, we're starting to hit the dog days of the offseason in a lot of ways, at least college football-wise. No worries, though. We'll be here yet again with something on OU football, and maybe the OU basketball team will have one, and maybe we will talk about the Sooners then, but not holding our breath. Until next time, for Grant, I'm Lee. This is West of Everest.